This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right. Hi, everyone. My name is Megan Garber. I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic covering technology, um, and I'm really excited about this panel that we have tonight. Um, we're going to be talking about big data, basically, and we're going to be talking about predictive analytics and data mining and medical breakthroughs that can come from data mining. Um, and one of the things that made me really excited about this panel was, you know, big data can seem like such an intimidating thing. It's, you know, sort of in the zeitgeist, and it can scare people, and, you know, it's, it's your information, and you're not quite sure what people are doing with it and if people are doing responsible things with it. Um, And one of the things I love about the work that we're going to talk about tonight is just the idea that this is all very practical and it's all very valuable and it's all, you know, about people in the end and health. Um, So I'm very excited. I'm glad you guys are here um, to talk with me. So I was trying to think about the best way to introduce um, the three gentlemen to my left. um, And I realized that if I actually go through all of their work and all their accomplishments, we're basically going to be here all night. So I am not going to do that. What I'm going to do is just give a very brief introduction of each of them, um, just kind of who they are, where they work, and then I'll turn it over to you guys to talk in a little bit more detail about the projects that you're working on, especially when it comes to uh, predictive analytics and data mining and all of that. Um, And you guys, please, in the audience, do be thinking of questions that you have for them, and we will fit those in at the end. Um, So to my left is Steve Miller. Um, Steve is the Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer at Express Scripts, uh, which is a pharmaceutical uh, benefits manager and does a lot of really innovative work with data mining. Um, To his left is Eric Horvitz, a distinguished scientist at Microsoft Research, also the co-director of Microsoft Research. And to his left is Russ Altman, who is a professor of bioengineering, genetics, and medicine at Stanford. Um, So welcome, you guys. Thank you very much for being here. And Steve Miller, let's start with you and tell us a little bit about what you do. Great. Thanks for having me. Uh, So at Express Scripts, we we manage the pharmacy for about 100 million Americans. So when you think about that, we have an extraordinary amount of of data. So we have all the pharmacy claims for 100 million people, plus we have the medical data for about 25 million of those people. So we have a comprehensive look at 25 million people, but a good look into 100 million people's way they use pharmaceuticals. If you think about healthcare, we've had big data for a long time, but the secret is not big data. It's big data leading to insights and insights that can lead to solutions. So I'll just give you a couple ideas of what we've done with this. One of the things most recently is we've actually developed predictive models. I can now predict if a patient will take their medication before they get their first prescription. So it doesn't matter if you have diabetes, cancer, or whatever it is, we know that people aren't very good about taking their medications. I now can channel resources to those people who need it and leave alone those people who don't. On a different front, I also can identify bad doctors, pharmacies, or patients when it comes to prescription drug abuse. So in real time, I can actually see which patient is at the pharmacy trying to fill a script right now whose script shouldn't be filled. And then if you take it even further, we actually have so much data, we can actually compare the performance of different generic medications. And so we can actually work with the FDA to say, this company's generic medication works just like you think it does, but this one is working differently. So the idea is we are now at this unbelievable point in time where we can take this data, get insights, but also create real solutions that will make patients better off and lower the cost of health care and hopefully make the system work much better. Eric, yep. 
So I um, uh, co-direct the Microsoft Research Redmond Lab. Microsoft Research is about a, a thousand-person, uh, a thousand scientist organization spanning seven sites around the world. Um, uh, a large uh, group of us are up at, up at the main headquarters of Microsoft. Uh, the primary charter or mission of Microsoft researchers is to advance the frontiers of computer science, period. Uh, we work in, in a variety of areas. Um, my background is I did my MD-PhD, had a startup in the Stanford area. Actually, Russ and I were in school together. Uh, and our startup doing, doing uh, predictive modeling and decision-making for healthcare was acquired by Microsoft in 1992. And I came up to help form a small little thing called Microsoft Research back then. Uh, so my work uh, includes uh, machine learning, uh, looking at large data sets, c- coupling machine learning with decision-making, cost-benefit analyses, I'm particularly interested in applying these methods uh, where uh, interventions can be, can be executed and have great effect in the world. In the healthcare space, um, a bunch of my recent work uh, last five years has been looking at the gold mine of data in electronic medical records. We've barely scratched the surface. Uh, for example, we now have systems that we've built uh, coming out of the research on our team that are running as we speak that are predicting which patients in a hospital will be readmitted uh, within 30 days at discharge time, leaving some time for intervention uh, and uh, coming up with policies that might reduce uh, these kinds of readmissions, or three days for an emergency uh, room setting. Um, Which patients will come down with a hospital or at high risk, have a high likelihood, down to the probability being predicted, while they're inpatients and becoming sick with, for example, a hospital-associated infection like C. difficile, very debilitating uh, infection. Hospital-acquired infections are in the top 10 killers for all causes of death in the United States. We've all known people that have gone in for complicated procedure X, and then surprising infection happens, and that almost kills them or kills them, unfortunately. Uh, And we can now do prediction in hospital uh, and uh, take action uh, and also understand the source on uh, the causality there. And I'll just mention one last topic, which is uh, beyond the electronic medical record, we're looking at non-traditional sources to getting more and more traditional, like social media and search logs. And we'll hear more about that as Russ and I tell a joint story together. But one example is uh, recent work, and we, we publish all of our results on our website, um, looking at um, Twitter feeds, identifying women who've had babies, and people often tweet, I just had a seven and a half pound, you know, uh, young little boy, and his name is is Stevie. Um, We we can actually um, align these people uh, who have had babies, um, look three months before and three months after with standard uh, social uh, computation tools being developed that capture measures of affect, and we can watch and see some of these women go down per affect, Here's the magical part, though, in all of this. We can predict which ones will before the birth. And that brings up lots of questions and comments, but that's just one direction we're going in. So um, uh, I guess the one thing I'd like to say to start off with is the amazing thing about data is it's not tied to a single scale. So what we're really excited about in our lab, and I'm sure all of us, is how you can integrate information from populations, from individuals, all the way down to the molecular level. And you can take multiple perspective looks at the same question to get very robust answers. And I'm sure this is a theme that's going to emerge. 
Our work is, we're very interested in the molecular mechanisms for how drugs work, why they work well, why they cause side effects, how you can use old drugs for new diseases that you didn't expect to be able to use these drugs for, or how you can avoid drug interactions. And the quick story that I want to tell as an example of our work, uh, the FDA releases records of reports of adverse events. And this is the adverse event reporting system at the FDA, hundreds of thousands of reports per year, which on first glance look like a mess because it's from all sources, doctors, patients, pharmacists, companies, and it lists all the diseases the patient has, all the drugs that the patient is on, and all the side effects that they experienced. So it's a many-to-many-to-many interaction. You look at it and you hyperventilate. (laughs) Except one of my students said, well, maybe not so much. And he said he did data mining methods, which I won't go into, and he was able to predict drugs that change glucose, that increase glucose. And he ran into my office and he said, look, I can predict drugs that increase glucose. And I said, that's great, except every doctor worth their salt knows the drugs that that increase glucose. So good job, but nobody cares. (laughs) And he said, I knew you would say that, Russ. He said, I also did an experiment where I looked for pairs of drugs that increase glucose, where neither one of them alone increases glucose, but together they do. And I said, well, now you're talking. (laughs) Tell me what you found. And he showed me a list, but the one that popped out, I'm a general internist, the one that popped out on the list was an antidepressant that I know a lot of people are on, and a cholesterol... Hands up. Yeah. (laughs) That's why we were all able to be here today. (laughs) An antidepressant and a cholesterol drug, neither of which is associated with increased glucose. But he saw this signal, and I said, good job, but I'm sorry. And that's interesting. And it was th- uh, I said, but this is data mining mumbo-jumbo. Nobody's going to really believe you. We need to get an independent second data source. So I said, why don't you go to the Stanford Electronic Medical Record and see if patients around those two drugs have glucose problems? And he came back, and he said, well, Russ, there's not a lot of patients who have a glucose measurement and then get... One or two, the second drug, they have to get a a, a glucose measurement on only one drug, then get the second drug, then get another glucose measurement, all within a reasonably short period of time. But at Stanford, there are 11. And guess what? All of their glucoses went up. Uh, Statistically significant. And I said, this is great. It's not enough. We called up our friends, just to make a long story short, called up friends at Vanderbilt and Harvard. I would have called you because I (laughs) 110 million patients. This would be a fun thing to check. Um, But... We uh, called up Vanderbilt and Harvard, who did similar queries in their system. So now this is three geographically distinct uh, electronic medical records. And lo and behold, all three of them showed this increase. Now we were starting to really believe it. And we initially had left diabetic patients out because we thought that they might notice that their glucose was up because they're checking and treat it. No, that was too optimistic. Diabetic patients were going up by 60 milligrams per deciliter, which is quite a large. Your normal glucose is around 690, and these people were going up 60 uh, when they were on these two drugs. And there's a lot more I could say about it, but we published this paper, and it was, for us, a very important um, experience where we did data mining to get this crazy hypothesis from data that looked like it was filled with garbage, then went to electronic medical records that individually were not enough, but then in aggregate were very convincing. Uh, and then we were able to find, and then we actually gave the drugs to mice just to show, and the mice glucose went up. Um, and so now we're thinking, okay, and then we started having conversations with the FDA about whether this is something that they should bring to the attention of prescribers, and that's a, a whole different story. But I, uh, 
The other thing we want to do now is understand the molecular mechanisms. Why are these two drugs interacting within the cell or within the, in the body to create this unexpected synergy that changes the, the glucose? Um, and so it's a very exciting time, and these kinds of discoveries, we then went on to do this on a very large scale and discovered 60,000 such unexpected synergies between two drugs, creating a new response that was not appreciated. Uh, and then we're in the middle of going through those and trying to figure out which ones are really important to bring to the attention. I want to comment. So with, let me, let me stop. I want to comment with computation. I mean, we're surprised by pairs. But computers don't care about N. They can go to threes, triplets, hmm. quadruplets, and so on. And we can, there's lots of discovery possible there uh, for, for learning more about these adverse effects. There is a, I can't remember the exact statistic, but among 70-year-olds on any medication, they're on an average of seven medications. Uh. So what we really need to understand is seven-way interactions. <laughs> uh. <laughs> and I, I do, because this is a sort of big data panel, I do have to ask you guys about the privacy implications of all of this and um, what do you do to sort of ensure anonymity and, and all that kind of stuff? Well, I mean, certainly um, working in, with electronic um, medical records, you can work um, uh, within the hospital system itself and, and, and abide by the HIPAA constraints or any agreements that the hospital has with their patients on, on this. There's, when it comes to search logs, uh, I haven't gotten, we haven't even gotten to our log story yet. Because oh, this is cool. Yeah, you guys should tell the story. So let, let, me, let me at least frame... Um, questions about privacy that might follow up on what we've done. So uh, Russ and I were having a, a, a milkshake together. He just finished a triathlon, and we were, I was giving a, a keynote lecture uh, for the biomedical informatics department down in Asilomar. And um, over that milkshake, he was telling me the same exciting results. He hadn't published them yet, though. And we thought together, wouldn't it be interesting, we knew about flu trends, for example, to, if we can go to, to uh, massive online search logs and find signal in that kind of scruffy, noisy, wild west of information exchange. And so we set out as a collaboration, uh, my team and Russ's team, this, the article, uh, the fruit of that work is now published, um, uh, and it's gotten the attention of the FDA among other um, uh, scientists and agencies. So the idea basically was if people search on, I'll just say the drugs, Paxil, and then they search on Provacol, this index events on the web, so, and they're showing interest in these two drugs. We could also look at all the terms they search on that might be linked to how you'd feel if you had higher blood sugar. And we do something called a random two-step walk to get these terms. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a nice methodology here. And yes, we came up with a methodology that showed us this bump, even with the noise, um, that we published uh, together jointly but then went beyond that to, to actually say, okay, how well is the web working as a noisy sensor for drug interactions? We went to, to 62 pairs of drugs, 31 of which were known, confirmed by scientists to raise the level of, of, of blood glucose, and uh, 31 that are known not to be the true negatives and true positives. And we just said, let's take the, this system now, 18 months of logs, and run it. Uh, and then find out how well that sensor works, and we generate what's called an ROC curve. But this is the idea of it's like a kind of a true positive, true negative trade-off curve that shows us how well we can detect negatives and positives. And we're all very impressed by this right now, and we've gone beyond that. In fact, Russ and I were at the FDA just uh, three weeks ago yeah. uh, at a meeting on combining the signals from the web with traditional, slower, 
self-reports and professional reports that come out over time post-marketing of, of, of a medication to get stronger signal. And we're showing examples of that now, the combination working nicely. So, so there's no doubt that patients are telling us the side effects of their drugs way before we detect them with our traditional measures. And so it's our job to listen to internet searches, to Twitter, to Facebook. That's what this meeting was about at the FDA. And I think the FDA needs to get credit for having a social media office that has recognized... I mean, I was stunned as a tax taxpayer <laughs> as a tech to know that they had set up a so, that uh, the foresight to set up a social media office that's thinking how should we the FDA learn about drug response in these new ways and so and these smart young young folks young these kind of maybe younger people at the FDA they're also very interested in food safety and things like food security and looking at famine and drought and so on so they're very it's very interesting uh, possibilities from the social signals yeah, let me add one other thing about HIPAA, though, because I think people are not paying attention to their own HIPAA rights. As you know, in the LA Times just recently, there was an article about a pharmacy that if you sign up for a $50 coupon, you actually are signing away your HIPAA rights. And so what is happening around... It, none of us read all the disclaimers when we download software, but now, uh, because this is actually behavioral economics... Uh, people are giving you a $50 coupon, you're signing away your HIPAA rights. And so there's good news and bad news to that. It's going to allow us to do unbelievably interesting studies. The bad news is the HIPAA rights you think you have, you're, not gonna, you're going to have to sign away. So the question also is, um, what can computer science and mathematics do to help us with effective anonymization that still allows for great research to be done? So, for example, at our lab, uh, the Microsoft Research Lab in, in uh, Mountain View, um, we have people focusing on what's called differential privacy, where you inject well-understood amounts of noise into a database, protecting people, but still verifiably not hurting the science you can do from that database. So there are methods like this, not just one example, that can make a trade for us that, that lets us give away less as, as consumers and still uh, help with the science. Now, shifting topics just a bit, Russ and I have both been interested, I think independently, I don't think we've talked about this, in uh, altruistic uh, um, uh, uh, data donation. Like, can, you know, can we make it easier for people to say, please take my genomic information, please take my 23andMe data set, I want to give it to science, how can I do that? To date, this is very hard. You might have a comment on this as well, Russ. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, people are understandably concerned about privacy, but like any other feature of, of a human trait, there's a bell curve. There are people who are extremely worried about privacy, and then there are people who are average worried, and there are people who are not worried at all. And we've written about this, that uh, there are these information altruists who are willing to share their data. And I'm, I think we need to take advantage of that because of the kinds of discoveries that you've just heard about in the last five minutes. If people close down that data source, it would come at a great price to society and our ability to make discoveries. So what we need to do, I think, is... I think technical means like you're describing for obscuring uh, identity is good. I also think that we can do it the easy way, which is to write laws or, or regulations that say there's certain things you can do, but you're not allowed to do. So if somebody makes their health data available for research, you cannot try to figure out who they are. You cannot try to use that data to um, 
discriminate them in employment or in health insurance. And if you do, there's going to be big penalties. And I think that, that uh, and there is a law, GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act that was passed a couple of years ago, which gives some protections for genetic data, but in general, those protections are not there. And I've become a big fan of having these protections because they could close down a lot of the things that we're all doing that I think are beneficial if... If, if people go all the way to the left and say, we, the only way to guarantee complete privacy is to take this data away from any common databases, mm-hmm. which I think would be a, a tragedy, and, but and, a, a yeah. biased. But. And norms do change. I mean, I, we, we look very carefully at privacy. Microsoft takes privacy very seriously. They delete all logs. Like, you know, frustrates researchers. 18 <laughs> months, it's gone. Poof. Oh. I didn't know that. <laughs> we'll be talking about this it's later. very sad. It's tragic. <laughs> I know, but... But, but, but if you look back in history, uh, the Brandeis uh, Supreme Court, there's a nice statement from, from, from Warren Brandeis saying, boy, in this era of flash photography, we have to really think deeply about personal privacy. It's like flash photography in the 19th century. Or think about there was a big uproar over letting other people ring a bell in your living room with the advent of the telephone. It was a big discussion. You're letting somebody else ring a bell, put wires together and ring a bell in your living room? That's pretty odd for an American household, and think about our pockets now, places where these, where these things happen. Well, and there is also this sort of Facebook-driven idea of just, you know, more and more and more sharing, um, sort of Zuckerberg's law, where just every year there's going to be exponentially more sharing, and as that happens, things that used to be taboo um, and used to be considered so private and personal are just going to be in the public realm, and that'll be good for the work you guys do, I would assume. Um, and along those lines, I just want to ask you about the Affordable Care Act and, and how that might actually affect um, the data available to you and, and the work that you're doing. Yeah, so, you know, the Affordable Care Act and several other acts before that have really encouraged doctors to use electronic records. Uh, I sit on the board of a company called SureScripts that uh, transfers all the prescriptions electronically. Uh, it is really phenomenal because it's giving us new tools, new data. Uh, and so the Affordable Care Act, when it comes to people who want data, it's actually been very good to encourage more electronic use of records, which are much greater for research. There's also incentives to do meaningful use, uh, show meaningful use of electronic medical records. You know, you probably heard there's a lot of frustration and a lot of... Um, mixed feelings about hospitals that went electronic because the, the, the results weren't seen early on. But now we're in a situation where, or an era where we can actually show and compute with computational methods that do predictive modeling what the utility structure is, what the cost-benefit structure is of having the system in place, making these kinds of decisions, rastering over patient by patient, doing patient-specific kinds of things based on predictions coming from that data. So I think that the early frustration was probably like the early frustration with seeing a 48-line uh, television picture of Felix the Cat rotating on a turntable before you had you know, modern, full, high-fidelity television. These things just have to start in a certain way, and they, they mature over time. One of the comment is with these various acts uh, have come incentive programs. For example, um, about three or four years ago, when we started our readmission prediction project, we gave a presentation at a very large hospital in Washington, D.C., who's sharing data with us. And after I finished the presentation, uh, the head of the SICU got up and said, but we make money on those patients coming back to the hospital, being readmitted. And then someone else stood up and said, but wait a minute, next year we're going to have penalties for these patients coming back. And you can just watch the, you know, the, the kind of Charlie Brown little squiggly mouth go, oh, um, 
that might affect how we do things around here. So we want to align, not that all, not that all penalty programs are the ideal incentive, but, they, but they're a start, and there's several of them now in place that you can really feel they're squeezing out innovation from um, these older hospitals that didn't do this kind of thing in the past because they had no reason to. One of my favorite sayings is, if you can measure, you can intervene. And we have not been able to measure the healthcare system in very meaningful ways, other than its cost, for the last 50 years. And now, with these kinds of systems, we're going to be able to measure things at very high levels of fidelity, and that will naturally create opportunities for interventions that should improve healthcare. <laughs> I think. <laughs> no, Paul. <laughs> Um, so I want to talk a little bit about um, sort of adjacent technologies and, um, you know, different fields that might inform your research. Um, I know, you know, you guys benefit a lot from social networks and all that kind of stuff, but also um, the crowdsource architecture of Wikipedia, and you've used Mechanical Turk, um, you've worked with, you know, the social sciences and benefited a lot from that. So I just wonder, what, what are some of the other fields that you look to um, to sort of gain your insights, and what would you want to be looking toward um, in the future? Yeah, well, I'll start out. You know, it's not, like I said, it's not just good enough to have the data and have the insights. You have to have a solution. And so uh, I'll give you a couple examples when it comes to adherence. So in the United States, we waste about $300 million, billion dollars a year by not being adherent to medications. If anyone's on a chronic medication, the chance of you staying on that medication in a year's time is about 50%. When you look at even devastating diseases like cancer, people take less than 50% of their medications. Mm. And so uh, that's just the way it is. And because of that, people aren't getting the outcome. So you have a great doctor, you know the outcome you want, but you have this patient in between. And so understanding the patient, <laughs> you know, understanding the patient has become a real big issue for us. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. If you're a diabetic and I send you a filter paper to get a, piece, a drop of blood to measure hemoglobin A1C. So I engage you for just 15 seconds. You're already doing your blood sugar. You give me an extra blo- uh, drop of blood. You send it to me in an envelope. That will increase your adherence by 10% for up to six months. If I, measure a, if I send this, a swab for a gene test for something called KIT6 for people on high cholesterol, even though the gene actually, we don't even know how to interpret it yet, it actually increases patients' adherence. It's the idea that someone cares about you, someone's watching you. And so it's not just having the data. We're going to have to understand the patients better, and we're going to have to deliver the information to them in a way they can consume it so that they can take action. So, so in, in answer to your question, several um, fields um, uh, really impact what we do daily. Um, one example, epidemiology, which is a closely related field in public health, we we're looking at very closely. We did some work um, we published uh, earlier this year that showed how we could take 70 years of New York Times headlines journalism, <laughs> um, uh, combine it with data about the world we're drawing off the web from DBpedia and other places, and could put, build a system that could pr- predict cholera epidemics breaking out, and not just make predictions, but teach us about the structure of climate uh, and raise new questions that we now take back to experts in cholera. Cholera is one of these, one of these uh, interesting um, uh, challenges. Uh, other, other epidemics are as well, pandemics. Uh, but with cholera, if you get uh, clean water to even people who are infected, you can cure most of the cases. Um, there's also a short 
acting vaccine that the Gates Foundation has been very excited about, among other groups, in fielding, but it's expensive, and where do you put the vaccine? Which is going to last just a couple of years. Uh, so if you could predict the places where you're going to get cholera, it's one of these high-utility, high-payoff kind of, kind of predictions you can make. Um, and we've, for example, discovered that drought followed by flood in certain regions of the world raised the likelihood that you'll see cholera popping up downstream um, in, some, in time T. Um, another area that's very exciting to us is looking at wireless communications. We're always thinking about social media and so on. We published another piece of work where we took uh, three years of cell phone data from Rwanda we happened to gain access to. So what, what do you do with this? We said, well, let's, let's think about this data set. Now, it wasn't phone calls. We're not, you know, uh, listening in or anything like that, but it's more like this <laughs> each cell tower, we have the data coming in. The, the, the call density at every single cell tower it was 141, I think, uh, cell towers in the country at the time. And we, uh, we noticed that there was a fairly significant earthquake that happened outside of Rwanda during the years we had the data for, we could use just the, the human response to the ground shaking in different parts of Rwanda to build a system that could beam form and focus and tell us where the epicenter outside the country of the earthquake was, also tell us where disruption continues in the country following the earthquake, and most exciting to me, tells us, uh, gives us a model of uncertainty, and it tells us if you had limited reconnaissance resources where to look to track disruption. So we're seeing these combinations of fields coming together now, communication, wireless communications, machine learning, epidemiology, uh, a number of other areas. Human psychology is very critical. I'll mention one more example. This is really important. This, everyone, this affects everybody in this room. We did a paper called Cyberchondria uh, five years ago. And we actually, it started with me. I'm, you know, ever since being a second year medical student, uh, I'm the biggest cyberchondriac. But um, people get on the web and we, we, we look for structural reasons why putting in basic symptoms into a web browser, into, into Google or Bing or pick your search engine, will lead you to thinking you have this rare illness. <laughs> How many people have done this? Hands? I currently have scurvy. So. <laughs> well, it turns out to understand this, you have to understand how search engines work, uh, how rare, scary things are overexpressed, how rare, scary things are clicked on more because people are interested in them, and that gives us the search engine, uh, most search engines, the signal that this is the right thing to do, this is the right answer. Uh, but thirdly, and most importantly, um, there's a whole area that Russ and I were, were forced to study as part of our curricula at, in Stanford Biomedical Informatics on the psychology of, 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 uh, of, of biases and human judgment. And it turns out that something called the availability bias, the confirmation bias, and several others that play a big role in understanding how humans individually and as populations of people interact with things artifacts like search engines have, to have big implications for us. That's great. Thank you. That's awesome. Well, I think um, do you, do yeah. you have a- the two quick ones that I would want to say to complement these are our ability to measure a high density information about an individual. The genome is an, um, we haven't hardly touched on it, but 3 billion DNA bases with huge implications for your health going forward is there. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is 
people are, ten- are starting to instrument themselves. These Fitbits that people yeah. wear yeah. on, yeah. and I have two colleagues who How many both people here lost, have them? <laughs> I have two colleagues who have lost 30 pounds. They don't even look at the website. They don't do anything except by wearing it. It's just like what you said. It makes them aware of walking upstairs and not eating pizza every night or whatever. And it's just amazing. So when you think of the convergence of our ability to get high-density measurements about an individual, both their genome, which is static, and then their dynamic activity and others, I think we're going to have... This is going to be really big data. Combined with the population data really allows us to triangulate on health in very exciting ways. That's fantastic. Thank you. That's great. Um, So I think now we're going to take a few questions from the audience. We'll pass you guys microphones, I believe, um, right there and then in the front row. How do you um, how do you all view the role of wireless health devices technology uh, in impacting how we transfer data uh, to and from doctors to and from patients and ultimately wellness? Yeah, I'll start. Uh, we actually think this is really the coming era. We already have pill bottles that actually are you know Bluetooth enabled. So your pill bottle starts flashing at eight o'clock. At eight fifteen, it starts beeping, and at eight thirty, it calls your mother and tells you you haven't taken. And these things really work. And so for the right patient, and so we're now looking at Bluetooth enabled scales, Bluetooth enabled uh, glucose meters, blood pressure cuffs. Because the future is, we're going to be able to interact with you. You won't be going to the doctor. You'll be able to interact and actually manage much of your healthcare. Uh, with, uh, by uh, working with these uh, wire, you know, wireless tools. And so I think this is really an exciting part of the future. It's also a great opportunity. Ron, Ronnie was talking about small companies. Doctors have like 12 seconds to think about these issues, and so they're going to need a report that summarizes all of that data into a red, green, yellow, simply uh, read and used uh, uh, information items so that they can make decisions with the patient about their health care. So I think there's a, there's a, there is, a, a, I think, a big problem here with condensing that all down into the essence of what you need to know to change your behavior. There, there are several different kinds or classes of, of illness that I think are suggest different kinds of solutions with, with wireless enablement. Um, one, chronic, maintaining chronic illness and, and being in good health, let's say with congestive heart failure, there have been trials with giving patients uh, Wi-Fi-enabled scales that track their, their water load, essentially, um, and that you can imagine uh, that signal can help you, these patients uh, adjust their diuretic, their, 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 how much water their medication is taking to, to, uh, to, to control their, their, their water and their salt. Um, th- these patients are basically are in stable flight with a tipped wing. And wireless can keep them sort of like, you know, like a control tower that's out there helping them to stay in stable flight longer. Then there's the young people or middle-aged folks who might want to, um, who might be, find out from 23andMe that they have a high risk of atrial fibrillation sometime in their life. That's often not even noticed or discovered uh, when, it, when, it, when it starts. You can imagine uh, taking the, your prior probabilities coming from things like your genetic uh, information that tune up devices you wear to listen more closely for things that you might care about and that have have a high likelihood of happening for which you want to know as soon as possible when they happen. And so you can imagine the different classes of where Wi-Fi and and wireless and uh, cloud-based technologies will will do a great job. Um, And we want to think about those all separately and individually. And maybe we have sets of startups in each of those areas. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. And then front row? 
A question has to do with the pharmaceutical industry. And as a physician, I've been very grateful and impressed with the fantastic pharmaceutical products that have come out over the years. But I've also been very frustrated by how many of them are Me Too products. And you'll have enormous resources poured into developing a simple competitor when they're already four or five already on the marketplace. Is there an opportunity in the data mining to provide some incentive to the pharmaceutical industry to get off of the Me Too complex and look for a unique opportunity to provide a, a real value to the R&D dollars that should be put forth? It's actually already happened. So right now there's 5,400 drugs in human testing in the United States. In my 30 years in healthcare, we've never had that many drugs in human testing. Last year, the FDA approved more drugs than at any time since 1998. So you've got to go back 14 years. And in, ninth, in this year, they're actually on track to even exceed that. And so health science is cyclical. And the Human Genome Project, proteomics, metabolomics, all these things are starting to pay off. And, the number, and you know from looking at the gene sequencing... The number of new targets and the number of new products are extraordinary. So I think you're on the cusp of seeing a tremendous number of new products come to the market. The biggest question is going to be how are we going to pay for it? Because not one of these products is coming out at an affordable price. I'll just give you one example. Uh, we haven't talked about cholesterol for 20 years. There is a cholesterol agent in uh, testing now. Your normal uh, LDL, bad cholesterol is somewhere around 100 to 130. You put someone on a stat, and you'll get it down to about 70. You take this drug by injection, it gets it down to 30, and in people who have that as a native uh, level, they are immune to stroke and heart attack. So there are three different companies that are in, uh, in late-stage testing of this product, but you're talking about going from a class that's $1,500 a year to $10,000 a year. Steve, are these the large pharma companies that are doing this, or are these the small independents who are out on the cutting edge and, and then get, get bought by big pharma? It's a combination of both. So we are in this incredible era. San Diego is actually a hotbed for this, but there's a lot of small companies that are doing the original research, being bought up by the big companies, but it's an extraordinary time that's about to occur. It sounds very optimistic, but I'm thinking of 5,400 cubed <laughs> There's a lot of drug interactions. <laughs> You're, you guys are going to have a field day with this. Yeah, exactly. All right, we've got time for one more. I think we've got one um, upstairs somewhere. Hi there. Hi, Lance Edlin with Pacific Coast Surgical. Uh, question, same realm as in pharmaceutical and with the Affordable Health Care Act. Uh, using big data, do you see with the onset of the Obamacare using big data, the FDA's interaction with big data, a conflict of interest with the pharmaceutical companies, they're going to be able to analyze that data, see how many really are basically doing the exact same thing and go with the one that's the most affordable and how is that going to stifle innovation for coming out with new drugs that are affordable? Are you saying that the FDA would have this capability or the drug companies? I just want to, in, in your hypothetical. Where no, are I'm you? I'm saying I'm sorry. You, with your interaction that you've been, you've been interacting oh. with the FDA. I'm up here. Oh. <laughs> you, you commented about how you're meeting with the FDA. Yes. And your interaction with them. Yes. Do you see that big data being used to actually eliminate innovation and just go with the least expensive drug because they're all 
basically doing the same thing. Well, if they are all doing the same thing, then going with the least expensive drug is not a bad uh, strategy. But, but no, I'm not worried about that because the, you know, the FDA is doing this mostly as a post-marketing. So they, they approve the drug based on the data that's given to them, and then they're watching for uh, its, its efficacy and its toxicity going forward. Um, and you can get good news, too. You can get news like a lot of the statins. The news has been, wow, these do a lot of other good things in addition to help your cholesterol. So I think that it should be neutral in, in, in that way. Uh, but, it's an, but I haven't thought as much about that, so I'll have to think about other scenarios where knowing that the FDA is watching could have an unintended bad side effect on drug development <laughs> incentives. <laughs> All right, and I think on that note, yeah. we're going to yeah. wrap up. Thank you guys hey, so much. You. Really appreciate Thank it. You. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.